if you know, you know. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to read the scripture passage for today. So I invite you to stand as we do so. It's in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 to 13. God's word says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children, not all are the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Lord, um, this is the part of your word that we're going to dive into today. Uh, we pray that you would help us to understand what you were saying. We pray that you would speak powerfully by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit through Pastor Vin as he brings the word. And yeah, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive and to hear what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Thanks, AJ. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Vin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, thank you. Um, look, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, but you know, um, when you first read that passage, it's it's completely confusing. Doesn't make any sense. So my encouragement is keep that Bible passage open, because when they sort of you know sort of go line by line and trying to unpack what that those verses mean okay so please keep it open as we continue in worship through the preaching of god's word um one of my favorite parts of my completely miserable days is picking up my youngest child from kindergarten uh, it's become one of my favorite parts throughout my miserable day because look i get to see my child smile when she comes out. When she comes out of her classroom, led by her most amazing kindergarten teacher, the teacher actually leads them out from the classroom and then lines them up on the wall. As they're standing up against the wall, like prisoners, <laughs> the kids start looking out for their parents. As soon as they see their parents, they are taught very early on, as soon as you see your parents, to raise your hand immediately to acknowledge that you see your parent. So all the kids are there, all the parents are there to pick up their children, all the hands go up. And the teacher, this kindergarten teacher, randomly selects who goes first. And the teacher does not select. She does not select from the start of the line all the way to the end. She doesn't select by height. She does not select by age. She does not select on the best looking child or the most well behaved child. It feels completely random in the way she picks. And it is. 
But that feels unfair for me as a father, as a parent. You know why? Because I was there before all the other parents. <laughs> I'm most likely the only parent there that knows Jesus personally. Add on top of that, I'm the best looking parent there. <laughs> so my child should be chosen first. Look, Romans chapter 9 to 11, if you did not know this, Romans chapter 9 all the way to 11, this whole series, is actually considered the most difficult in all of Scripture. Partly because, mostly because, it deals with what we call the doctrine of election. Okay? So there's the doctrine of election, or, you know, sort of like God's sovereign choice, does he choose? And then the other flip side is free will. So which one is it? The first thing I want to say is this. Sovereign choice, God's choice, and our choice, they're not enemies. They're friends. We know this because they're both in the Bible. And they're not pitted against each other. Okay? But look, in other words... The doctrine of election is tackling questions like, does God choose us? And if so, then why does he choose some and not others? Do we choose him? And if so, then what makes some choose him and others not? See, the doctrine of election actually unfolds to soteriology, which is what we call the doctrine of salvation. So who is saved? How are they saved? Does God pick us because of something in us? Does he see something in us, in our hearts, and think, oh, that person has it, I'll save them? Or does he pick without bias and completely random? You know, the, the, debate of, the, the debate on the doctrine of election has been going on for hundreds of years, and it will continue to go on for hundreds of years. On a personal note, just so you know, during uh, my Bible college uh, days, I was on one end of the scale. And I picked the college that I went to because of the, the beliefs that they had. They, we shared the same beliefs. But after graduating, I went onto the other side of the scale. I came out on the very opposite of what my school taught me. I studied the Bible like others before me, and I, have a, I came to a clear, but, but the main point, a very peaceful conclusion. Just so you know, even here at Willingdon Church, there are pastors who disagree on the doctrine of election, but we're still friends. We work together. I have family and friends within my own personal circle who do not agree on the doctrine of election, but we're still family and friends. I mean, they're wrong. <laughs> but we're still family and friends. So, but before we continue, it's okay to disagree. Christian unity is not dependent on us agreeing on certain secondary issues. What is of the most importance on either end of the scale is, is it Jesus alone that saves? That's the first importance. If we agree on that, we have unity, church. So I want to make three points 
in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13, okay? And the three points are, not by birth, not by works, but by Christ, okay? Not by birth, not by works, but by Christ. Those three points are pretty much a sermon, so let's end it right there. I, I've never received a clap on points. That's the first, wow. People were excited about bullet points anyway. So number one, not by birth. So let's begin with Romans 9 verse 6, because that's the framework, okay? So verse 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so the Apostle Paul who wrote this, wrote this letter to the church in Rome, a church he had never met. And he's making this argument about the, the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. See, his thought as a, as a Jew, his thought and understanding about the Jews is this. They were the first to receive the promise. And the Jews were the chosen people of God. God said to them, hey, I'm going to be your God and you will be my people. Even though, Israel, I could have chosen anyone else, I chose you. This is Paul's argument and we know this from the previous verses that Pastor Ray preached last week from verses 4 to 5. That's his call. If all these blessings, okay, if all these blessings and promises are for Israel and Israel alone, then why, this is Paul's question, then why is Israel, all of Israel, not saved? Because if all the promises and blessings are for them, then they should receive it all. But Paul knows for Israel, not just from the Old Testament, but in his time that day was that not all are saved. If this is the case, if this is the case and not all of Israel is saved, then that means God's promise, God's word has completely failed. That's his question now. Because he said, I would save you. My wife and I got to, uh, just this week, got to celebrate our 10-year wedding anniversary. Do you want to know how I made it for 10 years? Not that we made it. How did I make it for 10 years? Here's the secret. The secret is to know that your wife knows everything. <laughs> Even when she's wrong, she's right. Look, I don't remember the exact day I lost my complete independence. <laughs> but I've never, I've never needed help before. And now that I'm married, I'm always asking, honey, where's my keys? Honey, where's my socks? Like, I'm completely helpless. But there are those rare special moments in my marriage where I, I sort of, when I sort of look into the abyss, the abyss of what I call the fridge. And I open the fridge and I'm looking for ketchup and I'll scream and I'll look into that abyss and scream out to Laura, honey, where's the ketchup? And she'll reply, it's right in front of you. And I'll reply, I'm looking right in front of me. And she'll reply, you need to look again. And I'll reply, I'm looking again and I still can't find it. 
Now, that scenario might or might not be an exaggeration of my marriage, that's up for you to decide. But in those moments of looking for ketchup, the truth is there's a misunderstanding here. I'm looking for a bottle of ketchup, but she's referring to those small packets of ketchup that she grabs from those fast food restaurants (laughs) to save a couple of cents. I bring this up because this is actually of great importance of that illustration. It's important because if you're looking for a bottle of ketchup, but God is actually referring to small packets of ketchup, then actually the truth is then we have to reshape our understanding of what God actually meant when he says, I will save Israel. Because if we don't have a proper understanding, then we will not trust him at his word. And if we don't, then everything else crumbles. The Apostle Paul's argument here is that there is Israel, but then there's Israel. There is big Israel, but then there's small Israel. There is physical Israel, but then there's spiritual Israel. God made the promise that he would save his people. Not the idea of to save his people whole, as a whole, but to actually to save them whole. If they, only if they put their faith and trust in the Messiah. That's Paul's heartbreak from verses 1 to 5. That's why he's so distraught. Paul knows that his people, the nation of Israel, are rejecting the Messiah. The Messiah that God has sent and presented to his people first. This should now make us ask our own questions. This should cause us to think, are all Christians Christian? Would you agree with me that the term Christian has become one of the most vague words in the English language? Like the word love. I love ice cream, but I also love my mother. So, according to our Canadian census done in uh, in the last couple of years, the census says when you pick a religious affiliation, over, over 50%, about 53% of the Canadian population in the most recent census declare themselves Christian. So that means according to the census, that makes it about 17.5 million Christians in all of Canada. All of Canada. But if you were to dig a little further, the census sort of the way they frame about the, and the way the people think about Christianity is quite different. For many Christians today, if you, go to, if you go to a church service once a month, you're considered Christian. If you grew up going to Sunday school 30, 40 years ago, you're considered Christian. If you go to one Christmas service or one Easter service throughout the entire calendar year, you're Christian. If that's the truth, if, even if you were to sort of narrow it down, not take the Easter Christmas services, but let's just say that people who go to church once a month are considered Christian, once a month, 
then the answer would be not 50 to be about 53%. Christians who go to church once a month, it goes down to about 23% of the Canadian population are now Christian. But if you were to take that a little further and define Christian as Jesus believing, that is, Jesus is the only way to salvation, even churches debate that today, believe it or not. They debate that Jesus can't be the only way, or they would say, I would never tell anyone that in public because that's just rude. How dare you tell someone there's only one way to God? Or Bible-believing, that the Bible is the living and breathing, authoritative word of God. Even church today will debate this. They will debate the word of God because they would say, look, it's great, we love it, we read it, we preach it, whatever, but overall, it's just a bunch of regular men who put that together, and they're just stories more for moral inspiration. Or let's take even regular church attending. Look, I want to make it very clear that going to church doesn't make you Christian, just like kicking a ball doesn't make you a professional soccer player. However, worshipping Jesus for who he is and what he has done and walking in faith with others like-minded is a beautiful outflow of what you believe. So if the term Christian meant some of the things I've just mentioned, and it's more than that, but let's say those just three things, then the actual percentage of actual Christians in Canada would be under 5%. Look, this is part of the Apostle Paul's main concern for his people, the people of Israel. The people believe that that since they are physically born into Israel, that 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 means that they are spiritually Israel. Okay, Since they are born, they're spiritually accepted. The Apostle Paul continues his argument in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 9 because he knows that the people would say, Paul, what are you talking about? We are descendants of Abraham. We were born into the Jewish nation, into Israel. Being born into the family of Israel or into the nation of Israel, Paul, this should count for something. It can't mean nothing. But when you go back to 79, I'll read it for us. It says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring." But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You know, on the day of my wedding, at the reception, so just so you know, we had two receptions, one here in Canada, one in Australia, The one here in Canada, we had over 400 guests. More than half of those guests were from Laura's side of the family. And I was introduced to all the relatives. But I did not know who was born into the family and who married into the family because there's like significant differences. Do you know what it's like to be introduced to nearly 400 Asians who look exactly the same? And somehow to tell them apart, it's, 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 it's impossible. But 
But you will notice the names mentioned in the text of verses 7 and 9, which is Abraham, Isaac, and then finally, Sarah. The Apostle Paul, who's making his argument, he's actually saying, okay, now you've got to think back to their story, okay? Jewish nation, think back to the story of Abraham, of Isaac, and Sarah. Think back. And it's recorded in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. He goes, think back to it. For those who are hearing this for the first time, if you're, if you're new, welcome here. I just want to sum it up this story for us quickly. And for, this, and for those of us who have been in the Christian world for a long time, we get to hear the story again, which is a great thing too. In the story recorded in Genesis in regards to Abraham and Sarah, the, the, the husband and wife couple here, we know that God chose Abraham to father the nation of Israel. Abraham will be part of God's redeeming plan to bring creation back to the creator. We know that God, he states that in Genesis, that I could have chosen anyone else on the entire planet, but I chose you, Abraham. Abraham, you. You have no home. You have no land. There was nothing in you, Abraham, that made me choose you. There was nothing to celebrate in you but I chose you. At this time when this choice is being made clear to Abraham, God says, hey, your wife is going to have a baby, but, she's, but the problem is she's barren. She can't have children. But the promise is, is that I will birth a nation of Israel through Abraham and Sarah. As time goes by, Sarah becomes impatient because she knows she's barren and she's of age, she can't. She becomes impatient and she demands for her Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, to have a child with her husband, Abraham. And the story goes is that Hagar eventually gives birth to Abraham's son. And his name is Ishmael. Once again, in the middle of this, we think it's done. Okay, he's got the son, let's move on. No, God once again intervenes. And what's really important here is this. God intervenes and then acknowledges that Ishmael is physically Abraham's child. But he is not the child that God has promised. The promised child must and will come from Abraham's wife, Sarah. God's promise is fulfilled when Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. So here you have it. This is, part of, this is part of Paul's argument now. You have Ishmael, Abraham's son, and then you have Isaac, also Abraham's son. But only one is the chosen one, the promised one. Not by human effort, but by God's intervention. Paul knows that the people of Israel who are sort of knowing this and thinking back and reading this, they know this. And they know and they will insist to, to Paul and say, yeah, you're right. That's why we're Abraham's true seed. That's why we're part of the promise. That's why we're the nation of Israel because we came from Isaac and not Ishmael. So Paul, you're right. John the Baptist had to deal with this issue even in his time. 
This is why in Luke it says in chapter 3 verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The people of Israel thought it was enough, it was more than enough to be born into Abraham's family. That somehow that would get them through to the very end. The issue that the people failed to realize, that the nation of Israel failed to realize is, is that being part of the promise is not by birth, but by faith. We know this because Abram had faith in God and lived out that faith in his life from beginning to end. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You know, my daughters, both of them, as wonderful as they are, they live in a Christian family. My goodness, their father is a pastor. They have uncles and aunties and cousins who are Christian. They attend Willingdon Church. They will be going to a Christian school. God help them. But being raised in a Christian family is great, but both Laura and I know all those things are not a guarantee My children, if they want to be part of Abraham's promise, then they must put their faith in Christ and not in their parents or their circumstance. In my years of ministry, I've seen too many young people walk away from the church. I've seen too many parents with broken hearts because their children no longer walk with the Lord. Church, my heart breaks with yours. My heart cries with yours. But let us never assume that just because our children are raised in a Christian family and attend a Christian church, that somehow that makes them Christian. Let us, together with humility, gentleness, and love, lead them where? To Jesus. Let's not do this with rules and regulations, but let's introduce them to Jesus who lovingly wants them to be part of the promise. That he lovingly died on the cross to show how much love there was. Let's lead them to that. Number two, so not by works. So it's not by birth. Now number two is not by works. In Romans 9, 10 to 12, It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, uh, either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, uh, our cause, she was told the older will serve the younger. The Apostle Paul, he continues with sort of this unfolding of his argument, Okay. Paul continues knowing that the people are now a little bit confused. See, now that he's opened this idea of Isaac and the promised child, he's actually opened the door to now more questions, which is what he's addressing in verses 10 to 12. And the questions are that he knows that people are asking, either publicly or privately, are this. Okay, Paul, now you're telling us that Ishmael is just this physical, and now there's a spiritual and it's really going to be a promise, it's the promised child. 
Who? Who is a part of the promise? How does one get into the promise? And how does God decide who gets into the promise? Those are the questions, and now that is what Paul is addressing. The Apostle Paul once again goes back to Genesis again. This time to the story of Isaac, so the child of Abraham and Sarah, and Rebekah, recorded in Genesis 24 and 25. I'll sum up the story of Isaac and Rebekah again. So you have the promised child, Isaac. He's all grown up now. He's married to Rebekah. Remember that the promise does not end with Isaac, but continues to unfold into every generation after. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, she's barren. She can't have children. But the Lord heard Isaac's cry because he actually cries out to the Lord, please, God, please give Rebekah the ability to have children. And God grants Isaac's request. But during her pregnancy, she can feel the twins struggling in her tummy. Rebecca comes before the Lord. She realizes some, something is wrong. And she asks the Lord, hey, what's wrong? There's something wrong with the babies. And the Lord informs her and tells her, look, there are two nations inside your tummy. That's why in verse 12, he's reminding us that the older will serve the younger. This is of great importance. He's reminding us of something. First of all, the important points we need to focus on here is, first, there are twins that are named Esau and Jacob. Esau, the older one, Jacob is the younger. The cultural setting of this time would never allow the older to serve the younger. The other argument that has come before the couple of verses, as in verses 7 to 9, now unfolds now in 10 to 12, okay? Here's part of the argument. Part of the argument for the Jews here would have been like, okay, Paul, listen, we get it. Ishmael we get. You know why we get it? Because he was a half-blooded Jew. He had half of Abraham's blood, but he had the other half was the Egyptian girl, Hagar. So he's only half-blooded. He can't get in. But Isaac, he's full-blooded. He's a full-blooded Jew, just like us. See, helping to understand the doctrine of election takes on another concern. For some, it would be easy to see why God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. The people of Israel would have used the same excuse that I just brought up. We're full-blooded Jews, just like Isaac, so we're in. But in verses 10 to 12, that's his argument. He's saying, okay, here's a challenge for you. But what if both children are full-blooded Jews? What now? How do you decide which child continues to fulfill the promise? What do you do when they're exactly the same? You know, I can still remember in elementary school when the teacher would pick, I don't know if it happens here, but I'm pretty sure it does, but you know, in elementary school, when it's a sport or lunch or whatever, the teacher picks two captains. And you've got one captain on one side, one captain on the other, and then they are supposed to pick the teams as fairly as possible. And I always feel like the teacher picked either their, their favorite student. But no matter who the captains are, the two captains, right, they always picked either, according to the game, they always picked the best athletes or their friends. And I was neither. So I was, I was always the, like the last three to be picked. Even from an early age, 
We pick with our own personal biases, do we not? Look, I'm no better than the two captains because the truth is I would have done the exact same thing. I would pick to win. Paul confronts this question sort of head on and answers it clearly in verses 11 when he says, though they were not yet born, had nothing Uh, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It is scripture that informs us that God had made this decision before the children were even conceived. The children had not done a single thing, not a single thing, good or bad. The children had no good works to offer to God and say, pick me. And this rubs us the wrong way. Have you ever lined up for something? Not just in traffic, yes, traffic. But have you ever lined up at ICBC? Like a version of hell on earth? You get up early in the morning, you line, you line up to renew your license, your registration, because if you don't, you know, you're in big trouble. So you line up, you patient wait in line, and you find out when you get there early, there's always a few more dedicated people than you. One or two. And then you're lining up, waiting. And then somehow, some way, somehow, someone cuts in front of you in that line, whether it be through traffic or whether it be ICBC. Or they get in through other means, like because their best friend was already there, so their friend lets them in. You know what I'm talking about. That hurts, doesn't it? It burns. Our position in that scenario is that we did everything right, did we not? That person cut in. They wronged me. I deserve to be further up the line because I've done everything right. I've done everything according to the rules, not them. But this is when passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 sort of gently whisper to us and then tell us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As wonderful as you think you are, God's choice, according to the passage, is to glorify Him and not you. Which then leads me to my third point. Not by birth, not by works, but by Christ. In verse 13, it says, it is, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We end here with a quote in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2. The context of the quote is that Israel, they've been in exile, okay? They've been conquered, they've been taken away from their land, their homeland. Now it's over. They've gone back to their homeland. They've been in exile in Babylon for many, many years. When they get back to their home, to their homeland, it's time now for rebuilding, okay? We're going to sort of rebuild the nation of Israel. Malachi is the last prophet. For the next 400 years, God will be completely silent to his people. Right before John the Baptist hits the scene. The quote here is used to signify to Israel that God will establish his kingdom 
through Jacob and not Esau. To say that, yes, there was a mix when you were in, when, uh, you were in exile, but now that you've come back, I'm going to start to separate you two apart. And that Jacob will come, that promise will become the sort of the nation. Let me say this. Election is not the problem. Election is the solution. The reason why that election is the solution is that it's saying that all the responsibility of saving people is on God and not on us. And that's good. Would you imagine with me? What if God gave you the power and the authority to save, to save people, anyone you wanted? Who would you choose? What would you look for? Would you pick good people? What would make them good? How would you even define good? Is good paying their taxes? That they volunteer at a charity? That their family is intact? There's no brokenness? They're just nice people? They say sorry like a proper Canadian and not mean it? They're loyal, they're faithful, they're loving, they're good, and the list could go on, right? If, if that's what we're looking for, to save people. If, if, if this was part of the criteria, I guess the first person you would pick to save is you. Then you pick your family. Well, maybe not your mother-in-law, but... <laughs> oh, man, I hope she's not listening. <laughs> you, would pick, you would pick some of your friends, would you not? That's easy, right? But let's take this illustration further. What if I took you to East Hastings and then told you, now choose who to save? What would you look for? How would you know? It becomes harder when everyone looks the same, correct? Church, I'm I'm being honest. If I knew why God chose me to save me, as a good parent, I would tell my kids. And I'll tell them, do exactly what I'm doing so we know for sure you'll be saved. Because I want them saved desperately. Do what I did. But the truth is, I don't know why. Because there's nothing in me to save. But that's why Laura and I keep pointing and telling our children to Jesus, always. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, sums it up like this. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had chosen, not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reason unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. I wish this was easy, church. I really, really do. But this is hard. 
but some things should remain a mystery. You know, like when my kids ask me how a baby's made? Leave it a mystery. And get their teacher to do it. I don't want to do it, man. Look, I honestly wish there was a way to know who was saved and who was not. Yes, there's bearing of fruit. But if God could make it, re- if God could make it very evident and easy to see, it would make my life easy. It would make all our lives easier. But the truth is, not knowing deepens my faith in Christ because now I have to fully rely on him to do all the work. Leaving things to God makes me deeply thankful, thankful because he knows and has always known better than me. That's why the psalmist in 131 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quietened my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Church, leave the mystery of election to God and trust that he always and will always know best. My challenge for us, the difficulty for us is this. Living in North America, in Canada, is difficult. You know why? In our Western contextualized understanding of society and culture, we love to celebrate the individual and love to celebrate individual achievements, correct? I earned this, I did this, I have this. We all want to know we've contributed, not just to the betterment of our surroundings, but also to the betterment of our society and our families, right? If I'm gonna be completely honest with you and with myself, my entire westernized upbringing helped me to think about me and how I see the world through the lens that I have created for myself. Because everything's about me and how I feel about things. The issue for me in the beginning was the doctrine of election really pushed up against me. Why? Because the Bible tells me I'm responsible, but yet God does all the work. That annoys me. It annoys me because I want to contribute. It annoys me because my things should count for something. For God to look upon me and say, there's something good in you, Vin, that's why I saved you. I want to be a part of the solution of salvation. And God pushes up and says, nope. You know, a poem written in 1890 by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. It's a long poem, old English. I would not encourage anyone to read it. It's heavy. But the whole poem is reminding us that Jesus is always in pursuit of his people. He never gives up like a hound dog. Never. You know, when I first ran away from home, For those who don't don't know my story, I first ran away from home at the age of 13. I did did not know this part of the story until years later, almost, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years later. 
But my mum, during that time when I was gone for 10 years, my mum kept looking for me. I read that she would roam the streets in the middle of the night after doing work all day, feeding you know, dad and my brother. She would go roam the streets all night. She would actually walk through the most dangerous neighborhoods in Australia. And in one of her stories, she would say, she would sing hymns, old school, beautiful, biblical hymns to herself to give her courage to keep walking these most dangerous streets. She would knock on doors hoping her son would be there. My mother put herself in the situations where no mother should. But she did it because the pursuit of her son was the goal. Knowing that my mum cried every night. Knowing that my mum cried every night pursuing me makes me love her. But knowing that God, my saviour, does the exact same thing but more leaves me speechless. So the question is, is God's word void? No. God has kept his word, God is keeping his word, and God will keep his word. Let me conclude with this. Do not glory in your own faith, your own feelings, your own knowledge, or your own diligence. Glory in nothing but Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glory in you, we thank you, we praise you, we rejoice in you, we celebrate you, because you alone sent your one and only Son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus, we don't understand why you make the choices that you do and the ways that you do that. It's even hard to us to comprehend, especially for parents. I wouldn't even send my own child to die for other people but yet you do so Jesus in the mystery of how you do and why you do what you do help us to trust you more and Jesus for all my brothers and sisters in this room who have children who have walked away or uncles and aunties that have walked away or cousins who have walked away would you encourage them would you remind them that you are the hound of heaven and you pursue relentlessly. Encourage your children here today. And Jesus, for our brothers and sisters who are wherever they are, that have walked away from you years, it's been years now. By the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you spark in them something, a work that only you can do? And would you bring them home? So Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for what you have done. We praise you for who you are. We thank you that you have raised to life. Give us that encouragement today. And in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.